0: Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland.
1: Dan Auer, San Francisco.
2: It's December 29th, 2012. It's our year end special of On the Grid.
0: 2012 was the year of the Aquahire, so we're going to be discussing the evolving relationship between design
1: and technology. We also talked about big things that did and did not happen in publishing. And we wrap things up talking about skeuomorphism versus flat design and how that literally shaped interface design for the year. This is On The Grid. Let's, Let's go. go.
2: Gentlemen, how was your year? How was your year? 2012 coming to a
1: close? Yeah, I had a great year. I had a really great year. How about you guys? It was pretty good. Yeah.
0: I,
2: best year so far. Yeah.
1: Very, very eventful, if anything.
0: I think it's pretty important to have the best year every year every year is gonna be better than the one before it and I think I was this year was definitely no different we started this podcast which has been a great experience yep or uh yep. it's growing slowly which I feel like is the right way to grow a thing just slowly building that little mountain of that hockey stick business
1: yeah and it was kind of cool too because this was the first year I had moved outside of North Carolina uh outside of it being like for school so that was pretty wild out in the big bad world
0: getting stuff done mm-hmm do you, do you like uh, the Bay Area, Dan? You think you're going to stay out there for a while? Could,
1: could, you, could you see yourself settling down out there in the Bay Area? Oh, I don't have a choice. I mean, once we moved here, you Andrew's don't have like, a choice. Yeah, we got here, we got settled, and Andrew was like, oh no, we're staying. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Where is she from originally? She was born in Ohio, but had actually moved to North Carolina when she was like two. So, gotcha. I mean, she's definitely North Carolinian. And you feel yourself just melding into that West Coast fabric now? Uh, kind of. I don't think I'm going to change much at all, but I think that the experience here will be very worthwhile. So I'm definitely not contending it by any means. There you go. Matt, another year at Pentagram out of your belt. How's that feel? I'm very, I'm
2: proud of the work done this year. It's, it's really been exciting to get, you know what it is? It's seeing your ideas actually come to fruition and, and, and happen in the world as opposed to previous years, you kind of are a little lower on the totem pole you do the you do the work for everybody else to get their ideas out there, so mm-hmm. but exciting that's great yeah yeah I, it's, it's so tempting. I hate the
0: idea of just reevaluating your life every year. I feel like you should be constantly reevaluating your life and constantly setting new goals and resolutions or whatever, but it's uh-huh. so tempting at the year end to get all misty eyed and just think about what to do what to change next year so ah, very exciting, very exciting times mm uh-huh. hmm So we have planned a year-end special of uh, of on the grid where we have you know sort of gone back through the doc through the Reddit and pulled some of the biggest stories the biggest trends in design for all of 2012. Gotten some feedback on them. We sort of have three big topics that we're ready to talk about, right, guys? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think we should we should mention all the topics we considered. We should.
0: That's true. Yeah. That, that's we can sort of. So the ones the ones we're not going to be talking about, but that we did sort of talk about in in the preparation for the show. Um, was sort of all of the news about email this year. I think that email is a big subject of design thinking this year. You know, there were a whole bunch of new mail clients launched: the Dot Mail, the Mailbox app, Auto Mail, We Love Mail, and then Sparrow was bought by Google, which is a pretty big deal. Campaign Monitor totally redesigned and sort of entered, I think, more of a mass market than they were previously in. So yeah, email it was big this year, and I think we're going to continue to see a lot of innovation in the email area next year.
2: We also, we didn't put this in the doc, but uh, crowdfunding product design, I think, was yep. a really big one this yeah, year. Very we big. saw, I mean, we talked about Kickstarter so much. It, there was a lot of industrial design, but it also was just trying to launch a digital product, too. And I think that was very exciting because we got to see people put something out in the world that may not, maybe couldn't have existed in a in a previous year, which was exciting. Yeah. Including App.net. Exactly, yeah, like
0: App.net also used that crowdfunding model outside of the Kickstarter universe so i i agree the kickstarter i think was was huge this year their amount of growth was insane and i think it has a lot of ramifications for design but ultimately did not make our top three lists in terms of most important things this year so one of the most interesting things this year for me in design. I don't know. I don't exactly know how to word it. I think the relationship between design and business and specifically design and technology was really, really interesting this year. We see Facebook just constantly hiring. They hired you know a tw- at least 20 designers this year from other companies. Uh, among them were Wilson Miner, Kyle Meyer, and uh, Sharon Huang with some of the most talented people out there in our field. They also acquired Bolt Peters, which is a design studio. We saw other design studios, 8020 was acquired by Square, and include, include was acquired by Twitter. This is the first year I think I remember seeing pure design studios uh, that were acquired by technology companies for their design talent. So I think that this year was a was a landmark year for at least the way design is perceived by technology and by business. I think that designers are being treated in many ways like you know rock stars in the technology world, and we're getting, I think, big contracts, and we're you know, highly sought after people which I think is the first year we're really seeing that in mass. I think a big part of that is that Facebook is sort of pioneering the the way the way they treat design, I think is pioneering the way other companies are also going to start treating design because it's such a big, you know, landmark company that uh, people are sort of following suit with Facebook. So, I think there's a really interesting thing there. I'm curious to see is where where it leads. So, I have some questions for you guys. I wanted to sort of open this up and see what you guys thought about this. In light of all the news this year, all of the acquisitions of design studios by tech companies, all of the significant hires by Facebook, who is clearly, you know, sort of very, very ravenously going and pursuing the most talented designers in the field. And not just that they're pursuing them, but that they know who they are. I think very often we see big companies sort of out of touch with who the most talented or the most interesting people are in a certain field. And I think that Facebook has shown that they know where the talent is at and they're pursuing them ferociously. So do you think that the attitudes towards design and designers have changed significantly in 2012? And and if that is the case, in what ways have they changed?
2: I think, okay, yes. I think, yes, the attitudes have changed. I think both positively and negatively. It's been the year of talent acquisitions in the design field, but it's also been the year of major backlash of public designs in in a much more vocal way than we've seen previously. Yeah. You know, besides maybe like the Tropicana and the the gap rebrands and such. But I think the the good news for the positive part is that designers are seen as people who make things as a people as opposed to people who make things pretty. Yes. And that's going to be very important moving forward. It'll be getting us away from the kids table, which will be very nice. I'm sure this will have its backlash too cuz there there I'm sure are the designers who are really in, interested in making things pretty and they don't necessarily want to build the products, but I think for for the great designers out there it's going to be a good thing.
1: Yeah. And, and I will say that it seems like there's been a strong trend this year of companies and startups that have designers as founders that have ramped up a lot. And that has had a very big influence on other companies really realizing that design is an important part of the process. So they should include it in their staffing and, and in their part of their every day. Yeah, I agree. I think that we have seen more and more people start to accept that design
0: is a more significant role. In the creative process and just making things look good. And that's super, super exciting. I almost think, in a lot of ways, that the attitudes towards designers have almost outpaced the way that designers, especially young designers, are thinking of themselves. I think very few education programs out there treat design as significantly as a company like Facebook does now. So I think that, in a lot of ways, it's been outpaced, and we're going to have to see universities and individuals catch up in terms of thinking about design in a much bigger way. I think that one of the big things we went through this year was just our discussions about. Just how different product design is and designing something from a, you know, architecture, structural feature set standpoint is than designing something to make it look good or just work well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a big thing for me this year. I went through, you know, that crisis we all remember. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, there's a lot with our new responsibilities that we're being given by these companies that we're taking on excitedly. There is so many more things we need to know and understand and study to continue to do our
2: job well. I think that's actually going to be key is is picking up the education part to meet demands because most of the acquisitions are probably going to be kind of self-starters. Even if they came from a design background, you don't get to where, I don't know, like much of the Facebook design team is without working very hard at doing this yourself. This this knowledge doesn't come from a graphic design education or no. even necessarily a, a, an industrial design education. They could be either background, even a programming background and, and teaching yourself design. Yes. So you have to add these pieces of the puzzle yourself. They, they're they not coming from any degree I can think of.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I was talking to one of the heads of the design department at a big tech company this year, and they were saying that they have so much trouble finding designers that think about design in this sort of big, grandiose, top-level way that they end up just hiring programmers that already think that way and then teaching them the basic fundamentals of design in terms of layout and typography and color and composition. Because it's more affordable for them to teach a programmer who already thinks in this high-level way to design than to teach a designer to think in that high-level way, which is really interesting to me. I think that it's a sign that we do, educational institutions are always just intrinsically a step behind because the people teaching it have to have already proven they they know it by getting a degree, usually. So by the time they've gone through that you know two- or three-year program to get that degree, the thing they've learned when it comes to technology is already outdated. I think that we do need to see more people treating design as this, Big top level thing, which is super exciting. I love that 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 is where we're at right now. The design is getting more and more responsibility. Is getting more and more control in the process of designing these businesses instead of just designing a page. Which is, I mean, that's the most exciting thing in the whole world to me.
2: I'm I'm so jazzed about that. And I'm not at all surprised at, at what you said about teaching programmers. I mean, the most exciting designer I've been following this whole year was Marco Arment. So he's yeah. not even a designer by by trade. He just kind of, hap- you know, he makes products, so he has to kind of. Think about them in the design way. Yeah, people like Marco Arment and Lauren Brichter this year, I think, did
0: some of the most beautifully designed things. And they are not designers at all. They're simply, you know, programmers, developers that have enough taste to take the time to make their thing look and, and work well. And that is that is design. So, yeah, it was really interesting to see how much better at design some of those guys are than people that have degrees in it and are, you know, <laughs> yeah. super rock stars on a dribble. No, there's,
2: there's something to be said with not, not necessarily being burdened by what you think something should be. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that does really underscore something that was, I feel, a common theme of what we talked about throughout this year was the concept of problem solving more than just what people have considered designing. Because essentially it is the same thing for us, but uh, it's just a perception by many that design, like you said, is more visual and more about aesthetics and making something appear to be pleasing but design is more about problem solving and that is why programmers do have the ability to be able to learn basics of of you know visual design and that sort of mentality to be able to implement something that they're already doing which is problem solving so i feel like that really is a big part of it that designers are having to take that stance more uh much than much more than what we have in our graphic design education has provided in the past. This discussion also makes
2: me think that we're just kind of expanding the definition of it a bit too. We've talked about this in previous episodes of just design being the lens and the way you see things. Yes. But it's in, in the way that we see like maybe the biggest design icon of the past decade is uh, Steve Jobs, but he's not a designer at all. Mm-hmm. Or is he? You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. But yeah, he no. is. But he is. It's, it's
0: interesting because I, I I do think that what so many people consider design, this making things pretty, you can teach someone the fundamentals of that in an incredibly short amount of time. From my perspective, like I feel like I could teach an intelligent, you know, person that was willing to learn the fun the basic the basics of layout and the basics of typography and composition, you know, in a matter of like weeks. In terms of like being able to do something that is functional and you know passable. And obviously it takes a long time and a lot of practice to like refine that craft. But if someone's not thinking about their design decisions in a bigger way, in in the way that some of these big companies are actually treating design now, I think that's a much harder thing to impress upon somebody and much harder thing to to like sort of teach. That's something that is kind of intrinsic to the way you you view the the trade.
1: And, And I will say, I feel like we get to cheat a little bit because we do have that education already. So we know how to be able to execute something that is able to communicate just because that's how we've been taught so we know how to use color and type and all these other fundamental pieces to be able to communicate where other people they they know what the message should be that should be communicated they just don't know how to do it in the most effective way so i do feel like designers inherently have the upper hand but i don't feel like every designer knows how to use that for the most effective problem solving but that's what we saw this year is that we're starting to figure it out Yeah, I I think
0: one of the biggest things for me this year was after my whole crisis, my emotional crisis (laughs) uh, over at the end of the summer, I sort of came to the realization that for the longest time, you know, I was thinking of design in terms of like making things look good as this muscle that had to constantly be, you know, used and, you know, I had to constantly be evolving my taste and my aesthetic to be on the cutting edge and to do something interesting that people weren't expecting. And then Mm -hmm. after I spent all this time thinking about, you know, what the fuck that even means, I really just came to the decision that, all right, you know, I can make something look good and I'm not going to lose that. Like I, I, you know, four years at, at art school and all these years of trying to make things that are cool and interesting. Like I no longer have any fear that I will not be able to do that at some point in my life. Now I can sort of give up on that and just focus on making things that are structurally interesting that are, you know, in their architecture, they're simple and innovative instead of spending all this time worrying about, you know, what the site's going to look like and how many people are going to tweet about it because of the really cool parallax thing. And like, forget all that stuff. Like that that really just is nowhere near as important as designing the actual nature of a
2: thing. Right. There is something to be said about the fact that after after a while, you can kind of make anything look good. Not, I mean, in a kind of subjective sense, but, you know, you can make it look good and then what's important about that? That's going to be the the more important step is there are going to be a lot of people who can make something look good, but yeah, what's important? Exactly.
0: One of the other interesting things about this whole thing for me is specifically pertaining to Facebook. I really feel like Facebook has built the most talented product design team in all of history. Do you guys feel the same way? I think you know a lot more about it than I do, but... <laughs> I'll let you just go ahead. Mm-hmm. People I have been admiring for years and years and years all through my education in terms of their product design. You know, the Nathan Borers of the world, the Kyle Myers, the Sharon Wangs, the Wilson Miners. All these people are, in my opinion, like, you know, some of the most talented, intelligent people in our field. Now they're all working for Facebook. I think they've done a really great job of hiring the most talented people. Kudos to them for that. And I'm really excited to see a company as big as Facebook, and they truly are one of the biggest, if not the biggest tech company out there. They're up there with the Googles and the Apples of the world, really giving design this level of respect. They're hiring the best people, and they're giving them a lot of control from what I've heard, which is really, really exciting. I think it's going to change the way that we're perceived you know, across the board. It's going to trickle down to smaller companies, and they're going to start to feel that design is important from an earlier stage than they previously did, which is great. So, I mean, for, for all that we've uh, sort of criticized Facebook for on the show, I think that we have to you know, give them like, credit for that this year. What I'm interested in talking about is whether or not a team like Facebook's design team is something that's sustainable. It seems like they have between 60, 70, maybe even 80 designers that are working at Facebook every day, full-time product designers. And I can't coming from a small company, I cannot understand what all those people could possibly be doing every day, honestly. I'm reading a book right now that's really, really excellent. It's called Design of Design. It's by a guy named Frederick P. Brooks. He was a computer architect, designed computer systems in like the early 60s for IBM. So he writes about design, which to him is, you know, designing a computer architecture system and designing houses and stuff like that. And all the things he writes about are really applicable, in my mind, to product design, to what we're talking about, the sort of bigger picture of design in the world. And one of the most important points he, he brings up in this book is that design cannot be done properly by any more than one or maybe two people. And he cites all of these amazing innovations and amazing inventions in history and the Wright brothers. And you look at Charles and Ray Eames and you look at, to Rams, and it, when it comes down to designing a product, you really can't have very many people at the helm of it because the hardest thing about designing a product is maintaining the nature of that product, having a vision for what it is and how it should look and feel and work, and you can't communicate that vision across a, a broad team of people. You need like one person that's deciding that. So my biggest question for you guys is: Do you think that having, well, first of all, do you agree with Frederick's statement that? When it comes to design, you really have to have one person in charge, maybe two if they're as close as the Wright brothers were or Charles and Ray Eames. Do you agree with that? And then also, if you do agree with that, do you think that having a design team of 70 of the most talented product designers
2: in the world is something that's sustainable? I, From my own experience, I have to say I do agree that you need a kind of, it may, if not a single person, a single vision. They can be almost synonymous, but I, I do have a hard time imagining working with seventy all stars, right? Maybe not every single one of them is the leading vision, but even if you had ten that are, yeah, the leading vision. I I don't know. Like, the, obviously, the company I work for has has many partners that are considered the top in their field, but they function as their own team, and yeah, you work. They never work on the, the same one project. person. Sometimes they do. Oh, really? Sometimes they do. Yep. But they're obviously they work very closely together towards a single vision. So you can have two very prominent designers working on the same thing or three or four sometimes if it's such a big project. But that usually means it's multiple facets. There's like one person might be working on wayfinding, one might be working on the branding and one person might be working on the digital version of everything. There are reasons that that might happen but generally I think if if you're working on a specific product it's hard to imagine having more than a couple people being the lead on it. I I don't know how you don't end up with something that is disjointed.
1: I think that You actually explained it pretty well is that there's more than one leader uh, on a particular project they they handle a single facet so i mean because there's so many moving parts that are, are a part of facebook they do need multiple leaders to be able to handle that i think it's just a big question of how do they all connect to the single vision because when we get down to it facebook does have the same aesthetic across the board but how do right. they maintain that with uh, so many people because this was the year that they hired everybody i think next year is going to be the year to really validate whether or not it actually works yeah and it, there are a lot of facets to the
0: facebook product i don't think about it as one product anymore i mean there is the the website you sign into which i think most people consider to be like facebook the core product yeah. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure that is even the core product anymore. I think the fact that they have so many apps now, I think they have six sort of separate apps that all do a specific feature. There's the Messenger, there's the the Poke app, which is one that's a shameless ripoff of Snapchat. <laughs> it, it, there's so many, so many parts of the Facebook product. I think about it really as just multiple products that are sort of linked through this system now. In that sense, you could have more sort of people that are in there leading certain facets of the projects. I guess what it comes down to is I... I feel like with that many people that are so talented and so prodigious in, you know, the field of design in the same product, I wonder if there's a lot of like stepping on toes and people that aren't getting to, you know, use their vision and exercise their true design vision when it's really, really valuable. You know, people like Jez Burroughs and Nick Felton. I think Nick Felton probably is in a very much a creative lead role. It's just very interesting to me to have so many people that are so talented working on the same thing. I don't think I don't think we've seen that
2: before in in history. Well, think about Google though. Google had it wasn't it wasn't the same drawn from the same pool, but Google has done this for a long time. Yeah, with engineers and yeah, and and they did it with by developing multiple products that weren't necessarily connected so well. They all had the tag Google on it, but they didn't necessarily look the same. Yep. Mm-hmm. They maybe were phased out if they didn't work. I, I think that's actually not a bad model, and I don't you know I don't know enough about Facebook to say that that is or is not what they're doing, but. You know, when Google Maps came out and Gmail came out, they were not necessarily part of the Google ecosystem. And then they, they've they tried pretty hard in recent years to pull them into that. So, I mean, the effort can go that way. It's It usually seems better to go top down and say, here's the plan the whole time and these are always linked. But if you come up with a great idea and you want to build that into your ecosystem, it can happen. So that, that might be a way to use multiple product designers in an effective way.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, I do think that it definitely, the fact they have hired so many Incredible designers does show the fact that I think they are planning to continue to grow and extend their product and become more of a network with more facets and more little tools sort of under their big umbrella. Pretty clear to see that that's the direction they're headed. I'm wondering at what point the the exodus from Facebook is going to be for all these designers. I like it. The Google thing is something people point to a lot in that, you know, when Google first came about in the early 2000s, they hired the most talented engineers and paid them whatever it cost to get them to come work for Google everyone worked there for a few years. And then eventually there was a big exodus. Everyone left and sort of started their own projects. And now you can, you know, write a short book on all of the companies that have been started in that big exit from Google. When all these engineers like met each other, teamed up and went and started a different thing and left Google. I'm wondering if we're going to see the same thing with designers at some point. Uh, Oh, absolutely. So much talent there, you know, at what point are they going to decide to pack up their bags leave and team up with somebody else and be really in control of a big product? Because I mean, at this point with, 70, 80 people working for Facebook Design, I feel like it's hard
1: for any one of them to have real ownership over what's going on into the world. That is something that is very, very common where companies will go and hire a lot of people and then it just, they expect it to trickle down on its own so that the people that really do want to stick around and are really vigorous about. Being able to shape that product will stay and then other people who want to do the another thing or just you know have the experience that they had at that one company and then move on after a couple of years or whenever the contract is up uh, they're able to do such and I think it's just something that it just happens now with a lot of tech companies they hire big and then they just let it figure itself out do you think it's possible
0: to have a company that is changing enough and is so interesting you can keep? the most talented people in any field entertained and engaged for a a long period of time?
2: No. I I think it's possible on a small scale, but I don't think think you can say that for everyone. You're never going to please everyone.
1: Yeah, I think it's just human nature, too, that, especially for our generation, that we don't feel like we want to stick doing the exact same thing for too long. Because, I mean, there was people generations ago that would have the same job their entire life, where for us plenty of people our age uh, end up going to a new job every two, three years, maybe even 18 months, just because they want to do something different. So I I think it's just a mentality that people want to come, they want to contribute. And then when they feel like they've contributed all that they can, they move on. We're also assuming that the
2: job is secure. That's not necessarily the truth, right? I mean, Facebook could lose money, they may not necessarily be able to employ this many possible. fantastic product designers. Because, I mean, look, the IPO didn't go so well. So That's true. It's getting better. <laughs> so where do you think we're headed in
0: 2013? Do you think we're going to see more and more tech companies trying to hire product designers? Is, is this ideal product designer that has this great sense of how important design is, not just to the aesthetics, but to the foundation of a product? Is that going to be something that's continually more sought after? What's, what's the end game for that?
2: I, th- I just think every com- every company that recognizes what's good about it is going to try to find at least the one product designer that can that can help lead the ship. I don't think that's a position that's going away, but I mm-hmm. I think it'll plateau at a certain point of like getting so many product designers or paying them a certain amount. I think the the market'll kind of allow us to figure out what it what it really Cost to hire a product designer and, and what they're really
1: worth. I do really strongly feel that this was the year that everybody realized that they have to hire a product designer or some sort of designer on their team or a design team. I think next year is going to be a really big year of companies trying to assess of how that should more tightly integrate with what they already have as a system and as procedures and everything like that. Because... Engineers, especially in this area, uh, have a very defined role with a very defined system a lot of times where design is technically the the new kid and they want to try to figure out how it's going to best work for everybody so that the product actually is better rather than just trying to stick on design and hoping it works.
0: I I think design... Product design specifically has picked up a lot of steam this year, and I'm wondering. I think that momentum has to slow down, even though I think respect will only increase. But I think the rate at which it's increasing is going to slow down in 2013 because I think the amount of momentum has picked up this year is a bit unsustainable in terms of at this rate by the end of 2013, the starting oh, yeah. salary for a product designer would be like half a million dollars a year. So I don't know. I don't know how sustainable that is. But uh, I mean,
1: I would I would not complain.
0: No, I mean it's it was a really exciting year, and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in 2013 and. I really hope that Facebook's attitude towards design trickles down to other websites, other companies that are doing different things. So we see more and more people paying this much attention to the design of their products instead of just trying to take good looks on afterwards. So
2: the second topic is publishing. And this actually been it's, it seems like it's been a huge year for publishing, um, not just in in the things that have happened, but kind of the things that have proven themselves to work out or proven themselves not to work out. So I think one of the the beginning of the year was the iBooks author, which was a nice, you know, I, I don't know that a ton of designers started using it, but it, it was a nice introduction into Apple saying we want more publishers on our platform. And that was a trend that started moving forward,
0: more indie mm-hmm. publishers, too, not just big uh, yeah, yeah big no companies. yeah, right,
2: because yeah. it kind of lowering the cost of getting into the the bookstore on uh, the Apple bookstore. Then I think that one of the other things that was interesting was that the the Kindle singles they had been around for a year, but they they really started to sell. they think they passed over they were over two million sales by March of this year, which is m- more interesting that we have kind of a new medium. It doesn't necessarily have to be a novel. It can be longer than an article, and it can still be paid. So you have another opportunity for authors to make money, which is kind of the main problem in web publishing. We, we know how to get words out into the world. It's just how you're going to get paid for them. Mm-hmm. And then the next big one, I think, was readability stopped accepting payment. That was something we talked about a while ago, but readability decided they were going to start accepting payment and trying to distribute that to the authors that were using the service. And kind of failed in doing so. And I think maybe set up later in the year what was going to happen in micropayment. In August, Craig Maud published that great piece on platforming books, where he talked about publishing a book in the open, making a web version of it, publishing closed formats, going iBook, going Kindle, other e readers, creating PDF versions of it, obviously still having a published printed copy of the book. But I thought I think everybody everybody who read that started to see the future of what a book could be, not just Having to make use of the tablet format, but being able to use the web openly in a positive way, being able to still have a print edition and make it useful for people who want to use it on their Kindle or want to use it on their iPad. Then in October, Medium launched, Newsweek uh, went digital only. Marco Arment launched the magazine, and then the magazine kind of spurred all the conversations of sub subcompact publishing, which was coined by Craig Maud. Ryan from Thirty Seven Signals said tablets are going to need their own version of movable type. Because now that the magazine is a thing, people are going to want to publish their own version of the magazine, the kind of simple, no-frills version of a magazine that can be paid for and is relatively cheap. Important to know and he needs
0: movable type, the publishing platform, not movable type, yeah, not the movable Gutenberg. lead type.
2: <laughs> I thought that uh, headline was a little bit confusing. <laughs> I know. Movable without an E. It is very confusing. Then in December, the Daily shut down, and there was that really fast turnaround on the periodical, which was basically... An attempt at doing the movable type or the what you can call it the WordPress of tablets. Mm-hmm. So that that's the the kind of timeline of it. But I think the most important part is we're seeing that the kind of more general version of publishing on tablets isn't going to work anymore. We saw Flipboard get even more popular than it's ever been, despite Readability failing in, in the payment system. Services like Readability being very popular and. The Daily being a really great example of somebody who tried to put too much money into a broad version of a magazine, and we're not willing to pay for
1: it. Yeah,
0: no. This year was the first year. I mean, I think we see publishing really flailing this year in terms of it was very clear in 2012 that just simply porting over whatever you're doing in print to digital is not acceptable. It's not going to work. People aren't going to pay for it, which is good. We finally came around to that realization. It wasn't until it was the first year that I think people stopped being shocked to hear about print companies go, going under and magazines going out of business and people stop doing print editions. People are no longer shocked by that. It's just accepted. So I, I do think we're seeing people now just trying a bunch of different things. And, you know, Marco does something that's really successful for him. And people are like, oh, that's the thing. Everyone hop on that bandwagon. And that's going to be what publishing looks like in the future. The reality is Marco had a really great post in response to sort of all the excitement over the magazine and Craig Mogg's subcompact publishing and he basically said that, you know, this is the thing that works for me and my content. And truth is, there's not going to be a one a silver bullet that's going to solve all of publishing's woes. The reality is that everyone's going to have to treat their content as unique and special and design a system that delivers it in a way that is custom-tailored to that sort of content. And that's the promise of digital publishing right there. Is not that someone's going to build the next big thing, but that everyone's going to start to do their own things that is really suited to whatever it is that they're putting into the world. And that sounds great to me. It's just uh, that's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Right.
2: And I think actually I think what we're learning too is that we're doing we've done a pretty good job of figuring out how to deliver paid content to a kind of small and specific audience, but we haven't figured out the open web, the broader audience, the bigger the bigger publications, how that's gonna function. I do think that you can say that the magazine is a great platform for people with a specific niche audience. They're willing to pay for it. Here's a really easy way to deliver it. I I think if the periodical shapes out to be it, what it what it claims to be, kind of you can kind of say problem solved for that very specific thing. But we really haven't figured out the open web in magazines yet at all.
0: Yeah. And, and the biggest question for me is the infrastructure of these big companies, these giant publishers, affords a lot of things that small publishers cannot possibly afford. You know, people talk about there there are plenty of people in the design community that are just ready for everything that's in print to die, ready for the New York Times to go out of business. They just think it's an antiquated system that has no place in the future. And the reality is that New York Times is one of the only companies that's still paying money to send people to a foreign place to go be on, be a place where news is happening and to get primary source materials for it. And because they afford they can afford to do all of that, all of these other medium and small publications then feed on that source and feed on their primary you know references. And until we have a system that is allowing us to invest in reporting and invest in proper journalism... I'm afraid to see these big companies go by the wayside because I think that they're one of the only people, only groups left that are still allowing us to have real proper journalism in in the very few places you can find it. So it's important to note that these big companies are really important in a lot of ways. So transitioning them to something that works for them digitally, I think, is
1: really important. We can't just say, well, if you fail, you fail. Good luck. The bigger discussion with that that happened this year was people saying, oh, well, that could be replaced with social media. And people yep, yep, saying yep, like, yep, 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 yep. there was, you know, the immediacy of Twitter and Facebook and all these other platforms that people could communicate there instantly and they could be standing right next to the event. And in some ways, that's more important than journalism. But what a lot of people are forgetting is that to properly communicate requires focus and, and a lot of attention to detail on how you're communicating that. And that's what journalism has been able to do pretty well for a pretty long time. So. And we, this this was one of the a big year in
2: seeing how Twitter has failed in reporting information accurately, like as the news organizations having to get information out faster relied on Twitter and got a lot of things wrong. That's Do you remember very the true. beginning? Yeah, the beginning of the Sandy Hook incident. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Everything was completely wrong, and it was just kind of accepted that things are supposed to be wrong because we have to move too quickly. So. It's not, all, it's not all roses with Twitter. Yeah, and
0: so. I, journalism is a craft, too. I mean, these people that are professional journalists, like that's not something that it can be simply replaced by somebody somewhere with a Twitter account. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to make sure we're paying enough respect to these people that have spent their lives dedicated to the art of journalism and the art of reporting mm-hmm. to say that they can be replaced by you know, some kid with an iPhone is to say that you know, designers can be replaced by somebody with Photoshop, which, which we all know to be not the case.
2: I do think, I mean, there there's still maybe the opportunity for a great journalist to just be paid directly. I think that might be yeah um a, a way out of it. So that is still then saying that the New York Times is not necessary, which seems hard to, to think about at the moment. But if you're a really great journalist, you go and you cover the things you want to cover and you publish that yourself and you're paid because your information is more valuable than other people's information. That could be a reason that the magazine is, is more, um, more forward looking than we're even imagining right now. But- that that could just say you have your ipad you bring it with you you write what you need to write you publish to your audience they subscribe to it they download it and they keep paying for you to keep going to different places and covering what you think is important
0: yeah where's the uh, where's the crowdfunding platform for journalists i'm willing to pay money to have proper journalism in my town or proper journalism about this subject and that could be a
1: thing this isn't exactly writing at all it's actually video but a good example of a individual person broadcasting information is something like YouTube and, and these different channels with guys like Philly D who have these channels to broadcast news and events that have happened and people actually go into that more than they would CNN or ABC What's Philly and D? Can you fill me in? I'm, I'm old. It's a individual. I actually don't watch it Angie does, but it's a guy who basically has a channel where he broadcasts news and events that are going on. And because he has a certain personality and and whatnot, he has a big following. I think it's a lot less of the individual or what he's broadcasting. I think it's more the idea that it's one person who's broadcasting this information and getting paid obviously to do so rather than him joining like CNN or ABC or Fox where he would have to technically follow all the rules and regulations of what they do as a company. So I yeah, feel and you like he have to be it, a proper
0: it, journalist that is adhering to all of the ethics and morals that journalism has to adhere to in terms of being unbiased and tra- or trying to be unbiased, I should say. I don't yeah, know. I think yeah. there's, one of the topics I, I considered discussing this week too was the idea of disruption in, and how much there's been a sort of backlash on all the disrupted fields. That's people true. praise airbnb and praise uber and all these things and talk about how great they are for disrupting all these broken old systems but the reality is a lot of these old systems that are in place that are being disrupted are complicated and they're full of hurdles and red tape for reasons i got ringworm from an airbnb place that wouldn't happen at a hotel because there's health things that are in place there And, you know, there are obvious stories of people having, you know, things happen in Uber cabs that wouldn't happen with a licensed cab driver because of all the safety checks and background checks they have to go through. And I think the same thing can be said for journalists. Sure, anybody can be a journalist, but as soon as you're not bound by any moral, ethical, or company-wide rules and you're just some dude with a YouTube account, there is nothing Mm -hmm. stopping you from putting out completely false, completely – I mean – we see it all the time there 's tons of hyper biased news outlets out there and pundits and if, if the pundits and people that are heavily opinionated were our only source for news, it would be a dangerous,
1: dangerous world to live in and I feel like this is where Matt was going is that if the two polar opposites are eventually kind of converge, the idea that there are individuals or smaller groups that want to be able to broadcast information and they take some of the rules and the regulations and and the standards that are from the major entities and try to fuse that in a way where it's responsible information that's broadcasted, but on a much more granular level. And I, I think there, there is the possibility for that. I mean, you could have all the background
2: from any, any publication that has all these standards and, and ethics, and you can bring that with you and even publish your own manifesto and say, this is what I stand for. If you follow me, this is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally reasonable to assume that that can happen.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. I don't know. I mean, I've seen this year more than ever before the value of some of these antiquated quote unquote systems that have a lot of, you know, red tape and are slow to respond to things. And th- there is value in that in a lot of places. And sure, you know, mm-hmm. you could bring over the, the ethics and whatnot. But, you know, just the, the very nature of being a giant company that has advertisers and that has 20,000 jobs you're supporting, I think that those things force you to be more inherent to the truth and more honest than I think that uh, just a dude with a YouTube account, no matter how many things he promises could ever be. I, I guess I'm worried about all the excitement about, you know, micro-publishing and people putting out their own things and subcompact publishing. I wanna, I, I still have a immense respect for the, the big companies that are doing this professionally and have been for years, people that have gone to school for, for journalism. I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. No, I
2: think you're right. And I, I think the challenge is going to be building trust no matter whatever the startup is. It's going to be really difficult to get get someone to trust you over someone else, especially if they have an established name and they have a long reputation for doing so. Why, from day one, should we assume that you're going to survive or be trustworthy?
0: Yeah, and we talked about the filter bubble thing. There's a lot of value in having two or three big news networks that most of America watches, just because it brings us all to the same table. You know, as soon as you have this huge fragmenting of things... You could take the Fox News conservative approach and just multiply that by some factor and make it more and more extreme and have liberal media make that more and more extreme. And everyone just watches the news that is telling the things they want to hear. And we get more and more fragmented as a country and as a world. So I I think that there is there's just there's something missing from the conversation, I feel, about how important it is to have a big voice, I guess, when it comes to publishing and media, especially in reference to news. There's value in having a big table that the whole country, the whole world can come to.
1: I don't think any of us are arguing that. I think what this really helps to find is that the state of publishing right now is incredibly unresolved, Uh, even after this year of big events that nobody really has a clear idea even now of where we're going to be this time next year.
0: That's who it's unresolved for. It's unresolved for the big guys, for the the big companies that have been doing this forever and have a hard time transitioning when new technology comes about. I mean, for the yeah. for the little guys, for the independent publishers, like it's been just a fantastic year. We didn't even talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, which is an independent published <laughs> thing that yeah. some lady wrote some Twilight fan fiction and then turned it into a, an erotic book and made bazillions of dollars and something that would never have been possible before. And I'm sure that. All of the proper publishing houses that have people that review books and make sure that a certain level of quality and all the editors are just shaking their heads at how obnoxious it is that this book got so popular. <laughs> that That's really the crux of this, of this discussion oh. is that it's getting easier and easier for small, independent publishers and people that are producing things to, to do something and to get paid for it. You look at people like Marco Arment, you know, they can get money for it and support themselves. And it's getting harder and harder for big companies with the infrastructure that are slow to respond and slow to change to continue to support their business.
1: And let's be very clear. If it weren't for Fifty Shades of Grey, we wouldn't have fantastic videos of George Takei reading that book on the internet. I knew you would love that video. I knew you would love it. Oh (laughs) my.
0: Honestly, Fifty Shades of Grey was one of the biggest design stories of the year for me. Just the fact that that system exists now where you can write a thing. And if it's got some level of stickiness, if people are responding to it, it could become mm. that popular that quickly. I mean, that that's a totally new thing in our in our society.
2: The thing that seems the most unresolved to me is being able to distribute your content openly and still make money. Yeah, that I I I think there's been almost no headway made. Yeah. this year everyone's just slapping um, ads. on Everybody's things talking. Well, everybody's slapping ads on things or just talking about the walled garden. As great as it is that you know the magazine came out and we're working on platforms that can publish directly to iOS. I just I think we need to think bigger about things and realize that not everyone has an iOS device. It's, it's a development nightmare to develop for every single possible tablet that's going to come out in the future. Mm-hmm. And the answer for the broader publications, the New York Times, the USA Today's, is that if they want to get their their message out to a bigger audience, you have to use the web. And you have to use it in an open way so people can share links and you still have to make money on it. Yeah. And it is interesting to me that that really hasn't been figured out at all. It's
0: it's really just it's a it's a prime example of how the promise of the internet is almost directly opposed to a capitalistic economy. In that, yeah, the things that are successful on the internet are the things that are open and free, and everyone can get to and are totally free to access. And that's not how this country or this world runs. Can't sustain yourself that way. And and right. advertising is a horrible band aid to try and make that better. We've seen advertising take a huge hit. I mean, just just looking at the numbers of like Facebook's, how much they're paying per click for an advertisement and how much that's changed over the past year. People, I think, are starting to ignore ads more and more and more and they're doing it really quickly. Yeah. So that model is just dying quickly. Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right, Matt, that that's really the, the important thing is how do you have open, how do you have proper internet content, something that makes sense for the web that everyone can get to that you can still support yourself off of.
2: The tablet market really ignores the idea that The internet is shareable and that was that's been the explosion of the most popular social networks or websites in the past decade is that they have uh, things have been viral i mean that's you get absurd comments like make a viral video Mm -hmm. but that is how things on the web i think are going to survive and how especially independent authors are going to flourish so there is that weird dichotomy of hey you're an independent author now you can start selling things on your tablet but also, now there's no really, really good way to discover who these new independent authors are. The magazine does it in a certain way where you get to read a portion of the article and then pay to unlock it on your tablet and then download it. But that is, a, those are a lot of steps to uh, encourage someone to start believing in you. Yeah. So I, I don't want to discount the fact that I know a lot of web subscribers are up for the New York Times and a lot of other publications are doing pretty well in web subscriptions. But there's still this humongous gap for monetizing online content and as popular as the tablets are going to be there it's too many different formats mm-hmm. to support. It's not really all that economical and as great as Craig Maud's post about platforming books was, he still ends the thing saying like, look, if you want to do this in an economical way, you could try EPUB but we still haven't figured it out. So at the at the end of the day we we're we still have so much to do and the fact that the web hasn't been figured out is maybe the most notable piece of the entire year
0: yeah no i totally agree and it's it's funny to me to watch the watch the world port itself over to the World Wide web and some of the things that were some of the greatest innovations that really brought us together as humans and advanced our species like publishing are some of the things that are really, really hard to get right on the web. Like, it it seems like it should be intrinsic to anything we build, that publishing is is easy and works. Uh, And the reality is that something as simple as supporting yourself as a publisher that has overhead and has infrastructure is really, really difficult in this new system we've designed. So, yeah, lots of of questions, lots of things up in the air for 2013.
2: I know. It is funny, though, thinking about the way we speak about the invention of movable type, and this time I do mean Gutenberg movable type. Lead type, people. Look it up in a book. we talk about it as this is an amazing invention because of the spread of information and the conversations we're going to have to have are the ones that seemed obvious about selling a book. A book was a physical thing that you could sell to a person. The monetary part was natural. Yeah. You had to sell it So it cost money. <laughs> now we, now we're so good at distributing information. We have a problem. Yeah. It's an amazing place for human culture to be.
1: final thing to wrap up the year with was talking about the overarching discussion about skeuomorphism versus flat design. Uh, this was a huge thing that happened in 2012. A, a big push for it was the fact that Windows 8 came out. It's very flat. It's very uh, sleek. It's, it definitely feels like a new thing. But there was this big uproar about which is the proper way to design. Uh, because skeuomorphism, uh, which is often attributed to to the design that's used in Mac OS X, has been around for so long and been so prevalent. And why on earth would we go to flat design? But then there was this huge turn for a lot of designers that maybe flat design was the future of interface design, almost as if it were an absolute. Then it just turned into discussion after discussion of which one is more correct. Uh, And there's been plenty of Instances where people have said, look, neither is the correct answer. It's really just dependent on what the design or or what the problem that needs to be solved requires. I feel like this did get a bit resolved. I also feel like it's a little bit open that flat design is just another way to design for an interface. But as we had with one of our own episodes for the entire episode, discussing what's proper for interface design in general. How do you do that when it's something that's literally just pixels on a screen rather than a physical object? I mean, this is a really open topic and there's tons of links for it. There's tons of discussion about it, but I kind of want to get your reaction of where do you think we've gotten to at the end of the year about this discussion? Well, it's funny. In some ways, this is like the antithesis
0: of what we were talking about before. We're talking about all of the big, important ways that design... You know, relates to the structure of a product and the nature of a business and how design decisions really affect those big things. And this is a, a very shallow discussion. This is about the look of something and the aesthetics. And there have been, I think, a lot of huge shifts in those trends this year aesthetically. I do think it's important to talk about because mm-hmm. in some way, it's also not the antithesis of that. Because of how important we're recognizing that design is, not just design in terms of the structure, but design in terms of look and feel, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. little things like, should this button be shiny and have a big shadow on it are not just questions of are people going to understand, but also questions of how does it make the product feel and what does it make it mean to you as a user. I think that what we're really seeing is people struggling to find an ethos. When you look at traditional graphic design, there you have these large figures in the history of graphic design that have manifestos and they have very clear styles and they have this guiding principle for all the work they do in terms of Mm -hmm. graphic design. And I think what we're really seeing is people struggle to find that for designing anything for the screen. I think the reason we're seeing people struggle for that is because of how just just how big and overarching designing something for a screen, for a tablet, for a computer is. Because when you're making those design decisions, you're not just changing the look of the thing, you're actually changing how it works. You know, when you put a button somewhere, you're changing the functionality of that website. Where previously, graphic design was just here's all the stuff, it's a given, you have to then arrange it and decide how it looks, essentially, which changes the way someone uses it. You typeset a book in a crappy font and it's harder to read, but mm-hmm. the changes are nowhere near as significant as they are when it comes to. To interfaces. So, I mean, my big takeaway from the whole year is just that I I, I think it's going to take time to get to a place where we have a, a guiding set of principles for the way an interface should look that we can agree on. And I'm not even sure we're ever going to get there. I think it might just be that designing something for a screen is so much broader and so much higher level than designing a book or a poster or a product, a physical product, that we're just going to see a, an inability to assign a
2: clear set of sensibilities to it. I. Yeah, I, I think we've really seen the extremes this year. And where I end up falling is it really is about appropriateness. There's There really is no question of flat view versus skeuomorphic or, or flat versus visual metaphor. But there are really good examples of, of going one way or the other. Personally, I tend to fall more towards, in quotations, flat design, just because it's kind of by default stripping things that aren't necessary to the design. And I think that is always going to be better design. But we've seen... I mean, in in some ways, this has been the year of the UI walkthrough, right? Mm -hmm. Things have been stripped so minimally that you need something on on the startup screen that says, here's how to use this app. And to me, that's not all that useful. We saw that with iTunes, where there's the kind of facade of iTunes 11 being simpler. But when you start it up, it has to tell you how all the buttons work, where to find everything, because things have been hidden that... Maybe it shouldn't have been hidden. Maybe it should have been a little little bit more complex because in reality, iTunes is more complex. But, uh, and then on the other side, of course, we've seen the kind of skeuomorphic design of, of some specifically iOS apps that are kind of absurdly drawing from the past and really don't add any functionality to the app. So there's no answer to say one is better than the other, but you can't, hit by hitting both extremes you're kind of seeing that we can fall somewhere in the middle and find the answer for what is going to make this product the best product. And
0: I do really think that as a design community, we are on both extremes right now. I mean, there are people that are swearing by the flat thing and saying that they're so glad that schemorphism, there are articles written this year talking about how schemorphism is dead finally, which is ridiculous. And then there are people, you know, you look at dribble and go to the most popular shots and still things that are, just drippingly fake and have this really shallow, kitschy facade of reality are the things that are the most popular on Dribble amongst what it should be a designer community. So I think that mm-hmm. we really are split right now. It's not a matter of the design community moving in one direction. It's that both those things became very popular this year, and we saw a lot of attention paid to the aesthetics of an interface. And I think the attention is good. And I think that we're just constantly struggling to find this set of principles that will allow us to limit the number of decisions we personally have to make because we can just
1: throws decisions up to our sensibilities and our principle set. Yeah, and I will say that it seems like there's a lot of pressure for designers that that has to be designed something that is familiar. Because if we don't do something like that, it feels very unfamiliar, so it's harder to attach to. And there's a lot of people who feel like flat design is just uh, unattachable. is that it's purely functional, it's there to be able to perform a task, and that there's not a whole lot of room for flourish, and that, that's where a lot of the skeuomorphic arguments come up is that if you give something like a button a little bit more shine to it, a little bit more depth, then it feels more clickable. Thus, it feels more like something that you can interact with, where flat design, you can still achieve that through contrast and through color and all these other basics. Because of all of that, we've been going down the line of skeuomorphism or just flourish for a good few years now. And I think it's just where the pendulum is swinging the other way, where people want to design flat, not because it's the new thing or it's the proper thing, just because it's different. So I feel like that just might be another trend that happens rather than something that is proper and necessary for an interface to be designed correctly.
2: And I think we also need to point out that if if we change the word skeuomorphism and we just talk about visual metaphor, Mm -hmm. the things that have been praised as not using skeuomorphism like Windows 8 are not using wildly different visual icons to represent things. We're still, whether you're using Apple Mail or you're using Outlook, they're still both using the envelope, uh, icon of a physical envelope to represent the idea of mail. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's the same tactic. It's the same approach to linking a thing in the physical world to a screen in order for somebody to understand it. And to me, it's very clear that that is something that has worked, and probably can continue to work and not that i think that's the only way to do it mm-hmm. but it is a way to do it and it seems to be working pretty well the difference i think is the level of abstraction that people are actually talking about sometimes mm-hmm. you're talking about is this icon rendered in a very realistic way or is it rendered in a very simple abstract kind of lines and color only way so if, if you break it down on that level we're not talking about
1: much difference. We're talking about style. It's very interesting to look back and see so many people that were adamantly for uh, flat design and praising Windows 8 and saying that it that could be a future of design at, when, in fact, the product itself was actually considered a huge failure for the year. And the fact that people are still griping about how Notes app on an iPhone or iPad just still looks like shit but we still use it every day. And you, the, there's discussions around that and everything, but just the fact that the products themselves, where people, many people consider the future of design is something that came from a complete failure in many people's eyes.
0: Yeah, and Matt, to get back to your point about the style thing, I, I do think that a lot of these discussions do come down to just a matter of style. Uh, and, and where I think that's important this year is that now, for the first time, I think in the history of design, really, style is not just affecting the way a thing looks but it really does affect the way something performs like you could say it's just style and it is in a lot of ways but if you could tell from a b testing that making this button super shiny and giving it a big old drop shadow made more people click it and understand that it was a button then all of a sudden it's like well fuck you know i <laughs> i thought i had right, a no, they, I thought i had a set totally of principles
2: fair. totally fair i thought i had a set yeah. of
0: principles that you know a lot told me to get rid of all things that were unnecessary, and now this testing is telling me that it is necessary for me to make this button look ugly for people to understand they can click it.
2: Well, h- hold up a second, because you d- you just said things that are necessary. If it is necessary for somebody to understand the button, that does not change your principles. It just changes what you th- what the outcome of your principles, you th- what you think they look like. And,
0: and that's my point. I mean, you, you sort of cited the flat design thing as getting rid of all the unnecessary things. And I think sometimes it is. And sometimes it's actually the case that these things are not just style. They really are affecting the function of these things, because we as designers are when you make a decision about how to design a form or how to design the navigation of a website or how to design a button, it's not simply just how it looks like it used to be. You know, when you're designing a poster or a brochure or some shit back in the day, you're designing how it looks, which is cool. But now every decision you make has far reaching effects on the actual usability of the thing, which is one of the most, I think that's why this conversation is actually really tightly linked to the conversation we were having about design being a bigger overarching thing than ever before. So and that that's what giving that's what's given me the most the most trouble this year, Matt. Is that I yes I do think that things should be mostly free of these visual metaphors and shouldn't rely on making things look real to make people understand them. But then mm-hmm. what if that is what makes people understand them? Then I don't know what to do anymore. Right. Then all of a sudden I'm lost.
2: But it's it also will change with time. You need a visual metaphor to begin with, and as things become more understandable, you no longer need that anymore.
0: Yeah, and and to your point about the UI walkthrough, like I I agree that a UI should not necessitate a walkthrough if you don't understand how to use it. To the same point, I feel like there is a sense of you can design a thing that requires someone to learn how to use it. And once they learn how to use it, it could be more valuable than if you had designed it in a way that everyone could just intrinsically use it. And I think Clear is a bad example of this because I still don't like Clear. I, I don't use it every day because it's, it's it just doesn't work for me. Uh, I think it's just mm. too too convoluted. But to say that every UI has to be so dumb that you can know what to do at every single step without any sort of learning, I think would be totally ignoring a whole set of products that could require you to actually learn how to use them and then be that much more powerful because you invested time to learn how to use them. And these are some of the paradoxes of product design that I'm constantly wrestling with. It's like, all right, so here's the thing we're going to make. Do we make it easy to use so everyone can use it? And then no one really becomes a master at it and no one really you know, has a really intense connection with it or to make it something that's a little harder to use that requires some investment of time and, and effort, therefore limiting the number of people that are going to use it. But those people are better at whatever this thing is. And, I, and There's so many things like that in product design. that That's why it's one of the most interesting fields for me right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think there is a big difference, though, because we're, we're mostly talking about consumer apps and kind of non-pro versions of things. To me, the idea of a to-do list is inherently simple. And if you have to, if you require a walkthrough and how to use a to-do list, there's kind of, there's kind of a failing there Mm -hmm. because this is a thing that people already know how to do. But if you're talking about something like AutoCAD or, or 3ds Max or some program that's doing an incredibly complex thing that there is not a lot of precedent for, like rendering 3d objects in 3d space, there's not, you can't do that on a piece of paper. You can render one view of it, but even that takes a lot of training. So If you needed a walkthrough to use something super complex that would enable you to do things you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, that makes a lot of sense to me. But something simple like a note-taking app or a to-do list or even a mail app, those should be pretty simple and they shouldn't need a walkthrough.
1: Well, I absolutely agree. And I think this is one of those lessons that we should probably be taking from industrial design because they actually have to make things that physically work more times than none or things that are... Either simple enough that you know how to interact with it like a fork or a spoon or something that is more complex that has to come with a set of instructions. I feel like that is something that maybe product designers should be looking towards in the next year as a reference because that is something where there is an industry or there's a group of people that have been doing this for a long time. And how does that translate into pixels and interfaces that could change if they needed to, but how can we otherwise learn from them to make what we're making appropriate for the audience?
2: I think the analogy is good. Like saying the difference between like a fork and an airplane in industrial design can be the difference between clear and AutoCAD.
0: Yeah, that metaphor makes sense to me. And uh, our ethos at Friends of the Web is to design everything so it doesn't need a walkthrough. And then at the end, put a walkthrough on just in case. (laughs) <laughs> um, that's what we do with everything, and you know, we we try and make it as intrinsic as possible, and we test all the time without any walkthroughs. And the last thing we do before it goes out the door is just slap a fucking walkthrough on it, just because somebody might read it and it might help. And that feels like really you know hedgy and like we're just compromising. But it, it, I think it's it's kind of worked for us, and that we get very few stupid emails about how to use the thing. And hopefully, people that most people I think just ignore those things anyway. And so, for people that they ignore it, they can still end up using the
2: actual product. So. So this has been our, our year in review show, and at the end of the year, it hasn't been a full year for us, but we really want to thank everyone who's been listening and sending feedback and kind of building a community with us. I think our subreddit has been part of that. We've seen it on Twitter a bit, but it's been really important for, for us to see designers who feel the same way about design and want to think deeply about it actually participating in, and helping us out with I don't, whatever we're trying to yeah, do,
0: yeah, I'm I'm constantly flabbergasted that any of you want to have our voices blasted into your skull every week. So, so thank you all <laughs> for listening. It really, it really is exciting to sort of see find other like minded people that are thinking about designing this way because I think we oftentimes get outshouted by the dribblers of the world. So, uh, so unite. Yeah,
1: I will say uh, the exact same thing. I'm completely blindsided by the fact that people actually listen to us. As dumb as that sounds, uh, because it really just started out as three guys being able to say, like, we just want to talk design and we'll record it while we're doing it and just hope that somebody else actually agrees or disagrees or just like wants to listen, period. So the fact that there are folks out there that actually do like that we're doing this is astounding. You guys uh, rock.
2: You. Here's to next year. Another uh, our next year, hopefully will be our first full year of On the Grid. Cheers. Uh, thank you so much for paying attention to us. And, you know, we appreciate it. If you want to mail the show, email us at mail at onthegrid.co. Call us, 973 on grid2. Tweet links to hashtag onthegrid. If you want to submit a link for us to talk about on the show, onthegrid.reddit.com. If you enjoy the show, please review it on iTunes. Thanks to Girlfriends for the music. Thanks to you for listening.
1: Until next week.